Up next is Safe Space. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversation. Tonight is part of our ongoing series about trauma. The focus tonight will be about dissociation, and my guest will be Janina Fisher. Janina is a clinical psychologist in private practice in Watertown, Mass., and she teaches around the world on the subject of trauma with a specialty in integrating neuroscience research with psychotherapy. Welcome to Safe Space, Janina. I am delighted to be here, Anne. Thank you. So let's start out um, by defining our terms. What, when we, we're talking about dissociation, what, what is dissociation? Well, dissociation is one of those words used for many, many, many different kinds of experiences from spacing out um, is a form of dissociation. Um, highway hypnosis, where you suddenly end up where you're going without uh, having been conscious of driving the whole way. Yes. Um, uh, dissociation also makes possible peak performance. So all of our favorite performers and athletes, musicians, actors, actresses, um, doctors, <laughs> nurses, EMTs, all rely on dissociation to compartmentalize. So if you're a baseball player, all you're seeing is the ball. Um, Almost like a narrowing of focus in a way. Exactly. And I'm sure as a doctor you must be very familiar with the ability to just be so focused that you don't notice being tired, you don't notice being hungry, you don't are yes. aware of anxiety. Yes, that's right. I remember hearing about sort of players, football players, being in the zone. Exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. I never applied that to my own work as a doctor before. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great new thought. Right. And then the um, most, I think, um, little understood uh, aspect of dissociation is the ability for what's called structural dissociation, meaning um, structural divisions in our personalities so that we are able to um, be, as it, one, of my, one of my patients calls it, she can be two people at once. And tell me more, what you, what's an example of that, just to give me a feel for it? So an example of that would be um, you have someone, this is actually an example that I was, uh, had described to me today of a woman, um, very, very, very highly accomplished woman who is having great difficulty professionally because out of the blue, she suddenly turns into a enraged, caged animal, and um, and screams, yells, um, and otherwise intimidates other people. And in structural dissociation terms, we would say that the going on with normal life part of her 
um, temporarily has been uh, hijacked by a part of her carrying the fight response. Yes, the sort of fight, fight, or fleas, you know, it's one of those. And in that, because it's, I mean, we've all certainly known what it's like to get angry in the workplace, but most of us are able to um, manage the anger without becoming it. And in structural dissociation, the these different, we call them animal defense survival responses, like the fight and flight responses, the uh, freeze and fear response, the what's called the total submission response, in which we just collapse and go numb and we accept our fates, um, and the cry for help response, all of those in structural uh, dissociation can become separate aspects of one person. And I can imagine that for some people that would sound like multiple personality disorder. Tell me, is that what you're talking about or is this different? This is this includes multiple personality disorder, but is doesn't mean multiple personality disorder. And this was the discovery of Anno van der Hart and Ellert Neyenhaus, who are from the Netherlands, Kathy Steele from Atlanta, Georgia, who developed this theory based on extensive research. And what they said is dissociation is the active ingredient in post-traumatic stress. And, and therefore, some degree of structural dissociation goes with the experience of trauma. And I actually had a personal experience of this in April when I was trapped in Norway under the volcanic ash cloud. Yes. Um, And I was told it could be weeks or months until you get home. And I suddenly felt like a trapped animal. I was in a panic. I had to get out of there. My heart wouldn't stop racing. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. My entire focus was on how do I get out? How do I get out? And while all that was happening, my uh, lovely colleagues in Norway invited me to teach and lecture and consult. And the going on with normal life part of me was having a wonderful time with these (laughs) wonderful colleagues. And all would be well as long as I was doing that. And as soon as someone said, and when are you going home, Janina? I would suddenly get that trapped animal feeling. And I could really feel these shifts um, between, as it were, the side of me that was in the trauma and the side of me that just kept on doing all the things that make me who I am as an adult. Now, what seems interesting to me, thank you for for giving us such a a personal example, I appreciate that, is that you were able to go back and forth so that when you were doing this teaching and consulting, in fact, your going on with life part could carry the show. Right. It It was quite extraordinary to have that personal experience. Yes. Now, did it ever happen, though, that the panicky, trapped part actually intruded in your work in a way that 
made it really difficult? The, the amazing thing was that it didn't unless someone happened to that ask question. me <laughs> yes. in the middle of a lecture or consultation. But it really, it was beyond my control. Um, uh-huh. That was very clear that I was not deliberately um, moving into the trapped animal state. It was happening. And at this, and similarly, um, I would just effortlessly switch into the going on with normal life state when it was time to go teach and consult. Mm-hmm. So it, you can see how people become workaholics, can't you? Because yeah. it gives them relief right. from that horrible place. Right. Absolutely. And every every therapist and uh, clients should can appreciate when when our clients don't want to talk about the past, they're really saying, "I want to stay in the normal life side." And and it's not a resistance or a uh, failure to want to, quote-unquote, get better. It's that you feel good and normal and nothing's wrong in that going on with normal life side. And the experience of being in any of those animal defenses is extremely uncomfortable. Yes, and it feels it feels to some extent out of control. Absolutely. Yes, I mean, and what's um, what's been so uh, important to me in having this theory to work with is that it helps me to help people who have not been able to make headway or have not been able to make the kind of headway they deserve to make given their intelligence, given their hard work on healing themselves. Yeah, so so it's like almost giving you a key to unlock something that just hasn't been accessible through other forms of therapy. Absolutely. And so let's take another example just to understand this. So there's these animal responses to trauma, and as I heard you list them, they were fight, flight, freeze, total submission, and cry for help. Is that the five or is there another right. one? Right. Those are the five. And does, so say someone gets kicked into that, maybe by, a, you know, by some other form of trauma, does how you would help them with it differ depending on which one of those they're in or is it the same? It, um, well, that's a great question. Let me give you, tell you a story about someone and that'll help to make it real. Okay. So this is a woman who actually is herself a therapist uh, who came to me for a consultation after 17 years of therapy with a really wonderful therapist. I've met him, and he's really worked very, very hard to be helpful. And even after 17 years, her dilemma is as follows. When she's at work, when she's with her grandchildren and uh, and her daughter, when she's with her friends, and when she's involved in her Buddhist practice, she feels calm and centered and and actually grateful for this very rich, wonderful life 
um, that she has been given. And alternating with that, um, and this is why her therapist and she consulted me, she has continued all these years to have a panic that she is going to be abandoned that gets expressed in frantic uh, clinging phone calls uh, to both her husband and to her therapist, um, just unable to get any comfort or any perspective. And going hand-in-hand with that or alternating with it has been a states of rage in which she claws at her face, uh, she threatens suicide, she makes huge scratch marks on her legs, and uh, and again, and screams uh, at her husband um, and tells him how he is the coldest, meanest, most horrific person on the planet. Um, right. And she has not been able to make a bridge between the side of her that is a Buddhist, that right. is so well supported and supports others, so well loved and loves others. She's not been able to integrate those two sides. So when she's in the abandonment panic, it does not seem real that she has this loving group of friends and her Buddhist practice and her devoted therapist and her loving daughter and grandchildren. And when she's in the rage, um, the only thing that matters is killing herself or hurting her body. And when she's with her clients, nothing matters more than doing good work with them. So you can see why she and her therapist were extremely confused. Yes, and as I hear you, what it sounds like is, so one of these parts is the fight, and one of these other parts is the cry for help, the sort of attach for survival part, as right. it's called. exactly. Okay, exactly. so now what? So enter Janina. <laughs> what do you do, Janina? <laughs> that's what her therapist says. Yeah. Right. And, and that's what the... That's what the uh, cry for help part of her says, too. Yes. Um, and and so here's how the therapy is proceeding, and I'm really role modeling for the therapist who comes to, uh, to sessions. We have three-way sessions, so I can model for him how to do this work. Mm. As she begins to get in touch with either the abandonment panic or the rage or just even the impulse to to claw, I ask her to stop and notice the feelings and impulses and sensations in her body as communications from those parts. Mm. So what I'm doing is I'm keeping her going on with normal life self and her wise mind online. Yeah, so that she's beginning to observe herself and not just be in that totally. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes I say, um, she'll say, I can't, I can't. Um, and I'll say, just notice these feelings as a part of you rather than becoming her. Mm-hmm. And and we're 
we've been working with what helps her to separate from the part and to observe it rather than become it. And this will not come as a shock to you, but one of the things that helps her the most is being in meditation posture. So if she goes into lotus position um, with her spine lengthened, as she would be, um, she gets in contact with that going on with normal life self, and she feels centered, and she feels calm, and then she can start to feel some compassion for the frantic uh, panic of her little attached part and the rage of her angry fight part. Yes, and I can imagine that alone begins to change everything, that she's now in relationship to that part of herself from a compassionate place. And the amazing thing is that she'll say, well, just tell me what to say, tell me what to say, which of course doesn't really doesn't work because the compassion piece is the is the missing ingredient right just yeah. right so if you told her what to say but she wasn't actually feeling compassion <laughs> it's funny how it wouldn't actually work in other words exactly yes. it's it's like it's like saying to a child it's okay you'll be okay honey and they know that you really want to be making dinner rather than hugging them and reassuring them. And so so the one of the most important things I find is both the ability to sit back and notice these feelings as a very young, young, vulnerable part of her, or the rage as a as an angry teenager who um who is coming to the defense of this very, very vulnerable uh, little girl. And all of this makes perfect sense in the context of her history um, with a very, very abusive and yet needy mother. So, so let me ask you a little bit more about this, if that's all right. I understand the idea of rage as a kind of defending teenager. When I work with someone around this, I often call it this part as your champion, mm-hmm. you know, that's so wanting to protect you. Yeah. Um, but when it's turned toward herself, when she wants to claw herself, how do you, how do you think about it and talk about it with the person then? Because it's harder to understand it as a, as a defender or as a protector. Yes, I think that's often confusing um, for not only therapists, but also for for the clients. Mm-hmm. Um, what what that fight part is doing when when it claws and scratches and threatens suicide is is to get relief in the body. So when we when we harm the body, when there's scratching and clawing, burning, cutting, what happens is that we trigger adrenaline and endorphins. And the adrenaline helps to replace feelings of overwhelm with feelings of strength, calm, kind of icy calm. You know, the adrenaline calm is a kind of icy calm um, with the strength of Superman. 
and the endorphins take the edge off the pain. So um, what I say to my patients is, you know, the chemicals you make in your own body can help more than the medications the psychiatrist prescribes. Unfortunately, um, self-harm is addictive, so it takes more and more to get the same effect. So but it will really, escalate, those bodyguards are trying to make the bad feelings go away. Yes, I, I often talk to people I work with about suicide that way. It's sort of this part is trying to give you hope for relief. Absolutely. Right, I say, I say, well, the suicidal part has the bailout plan. Right. If it gets that bad, I have a way out. That's right. Which brings a sense of control, and you're absolutely right. There's relief in having control when you feel powerless. Yes, this is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann, and this is Safe Space. I'm talking to Janina Fisher about working with dissociation in, in therapy for trauma. And it, it's, so, it's so wonderful to hear you say this, because I think it makes so much sense uh, to, to people who do these things. You know, to, So exactly as you said, there's this very highly accomplished person who has these other sides of themselves that, they, that they're ashamed of and don't know what to make yeah. sense of them. And this model helps them make sense. So there isn't as much shame about the behavior to begin with. Absolutely. Yeah. Or let's say... Um, the individual who's really very independent, maybe even a feminist, who cannot say no, who cannot set limits and boundaries, and then has all kinds of shame, um, what's wrong with me, that I can't do what I encourage others to do. And, uh, and then if I say, well, that's the, that's the submit part. And the submit part's job is to do whatever is required, to never say no and always say yes. Mm. That's very powerful. We don't hear about that one. You know, we've made it from fight or flight to now fight, flight, or freeze. Those are much more in sort of common parlance. Would be If you're talking about it as an animal defense, do you think of the submit part as a kind of playing dead part? Right. And... In animals, it's pretty simple in that yeah. in, in the animal kingdom, the submission response consists of the animal uh, playing dead or burying the throat, uh. except that in order to play dead effectively, you actually have to go into a submissive state called a dorsal vagal state. And when so the body is not pretending to play dead, it's actually in a state similar to a medically induced coma where it's alive but not fully conscious. But in humans, this submission response gets much, much more complex, and it's actually a very, very important part of what we treat when we help people to treat trauma because the submission response in humans, um, appears as depression, self-loathing, shame, uh, a concern about pleasing and getting it right and doing it perfectly, um, caretaking of others, 
all of those very, very common issues that we see in our trauma patients are really all driven by the submission response. So tell me more how shame is related to the submission response. Well, two ways. One, of course, is, you know, there's honor and dignity in fight, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're the part of the individual who has to give in and give up, that feels very shameful. Mm. And then the other very exciting way of understanding shame, which I have started to work with, comes from uh, Alan Shore, and it talks about shame as a way of inhibiting behavior. So the theory says that shame is a way to help children inhibit behavior that might be dangerous, which is great if you're a toddler and you're about to touch the hot stove and your mom says, now, honey, don't you touch that stove. And there's this little moment of shame and the toddler stops short and then mom gives hugs and kisses and says, good for you, I'm so proud of you. That little moment of shame did its job, but there's no long-lasting shame effect. For traumatized and neglected children, shame becomes a way of keeping the submission responses going. How? Say more. So if you think about what happens to all of us when we feel shame, we uh, look down, we wish we could hide, um, there's often a kind of sick feeling in the gut. We cover our faces. We cover our faces. And that's the posture of submission. And so the shame is an instant way of helping children inhibit behavior that might be threatening to an abusive parent and immediately assuming a submissive posture and as one of my, my patients uh, emailed me, she said, this, this shame didn't save me, but it reduced the damage. Fascinating. So Isn't the idea, yeah, so let me just say it back to you. So what the shame is a, is a force of inhibition. A whole cultures use it to, you know, keep people in line in a way. Absolutely. And what you're saying is that with a traumatized individual, shame inhibits the child from provoking the abuser, basically. Right. Whether that's by talking back or doing something that actually might make it worse for the child. Yes, absolutely. And you and I know that children naturally, when they feel safe, don't inhibit their behavior. If they're angry, they say... Right, much as the parent might wish that they did. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yes. A little more inhibiting might be good. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yes, no, that's so interesting. So then there's this kind of self-perpetuating... Thing where shame is shame is sort of a marker that the person is in their submission part. It's a right. clue. So that's yeah. the last question because we're going to have to stop in just yeah. a couple of minutes. But in one of your really wonderful articles at the bottom of your website, JaninaFisher.com, in the resources section, there's a number of papers you wrote, which I just loved and I recommend highly. Okay. You talk about that the value of therapy can be in helping someone move from a very triggered place. In other words, 
I presume from a dissociated place where the person's in a part, to realizing that that's just sensation, there's no real threat, and sort of moving from the past into the present. And I was curious, you talked about in your clinical example of helping the person realize that they're in a part. But tell me what the next step is. Once the person kind of is aware, okay, I'm triggered right now. This is actually communication from a part. I can begin to have compassion for that part. What what happens? What's needing to happen after that? Well, you know, it's it's wonderful because I'll, I'll go back to the woman who said, "Just tell me what to say to them." Yeah. And I said to her, um, "You'll know what to say when you unblend or separate yourself, um, and you're in relationship to that part." And she kind of grumbled. Probably that was the fight part. Oh, well, all right, I'll do it your way. And then as she assumed her meditation posture and she began to notice this little part that was so sad and upset and panicked, um, she began to feel some compassion. And I said to her, if this little girl were standing right in front of you, Right. Imagine her. She's standing right there, and you can see the sadness and the fear on her face. What would you want to do? And and it, it took her all of you know two seconds to say, "I would pick her up and hold her." Yeah. And and so the the what to do next just flowed very very naturally from making the compassionate connection to this little girl that she once was. Right. So at that point, you can trust it. It's going to unfold just in the way it needs to, is what you're saying. Exactly. And and I also teach people things that they can do in the way of interventions, like they can say the words, I'm here, I'm here now, or right this minute, you're not alone. Yes. Whatever... The, the client senses this little part needs to hear. Yes. Or just put a, sometimes I suggest that the client put a hand over the part of the body where they feel this young, vulnerable part, mm. which is a somatic way of saying, we do this with little kids. We don't always use words. We just hold them or touch them so they know we're here. Ginny, that I, on that note, we are going to have to stop. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. I really I feel like I'm learning live, which is a great perk of this job. Great. If someone wants to contact you or have a consultation with you, how can they find you? They can find me via my email, which is the easiest way to contact me these days is via email. And my email address is Dr. J.J. Fisher, D-R-J-J. F-I-S-H-E-R at AOL.com. And, of course, the website also has that information. And that's JaninaFisher.com. Janina, thank you so much for being my guest. You're so welcome. If you'd like to listen to this show in its entirety or send an email about it to your friend or download a podcast of it through iTunes onto your computer, please visit the site, which is www.safespaceradio.com. You can also email me at dranne at safespaceradio.com to request a future show. Um, 
My thanks tonight to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound, to Maurice Lennon for the music, and to Neil McKenty for consulting with me. Coming up next, I think, is Allison? Is actually Eric with Sound Counterpositive. We're getting an extra half hour of Sound Counterpositive tonight in celebration of Thanksgiving. I'll be back next week. <laughs>